Hello and welcome to the 101th episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. Thank you to all the purple people listening and tuning into a podcast that is essentially all about words and includes lots of witterings from me, Susie Dent, and my co-presenter Giles. Hi, Giles. I give the witterings, you give the solid content, but can I pick you up on this 101th? I know, that sounds odd. It does. 101st. That's, that's why. That's, yes, but you're completely <laughs> this right. This is a programme all about words and correct language, and I've just mucked it up with the very first Except, first no, who is to decide second. what is correct? You are the arbiter. Around the world, they think, if Susie Dent says it, it must be right. And if 100th <laughs> is right, why is 101th not right? I know, it's got a first in it. That's unforgivable. I can only apologise and say that I need more coffee. No, I think this is a new way of speaking. The 101th and then the 102th. <laughs> that, that's a bit difficult. Anyway. Numbers, honestly, I think we've had lots and lots of emails actually begging us to do an episode about numbers. And I would love to, but they are so crazy and inconsistent and unpredictable that I think we would get ourselves completely tangled up. But maybe when we're brave and when I've had enough coffee, we can bring it on. Look, we've done episodes on deep sex and on chemistry. We can certainly (laughs) do an episode on numbers. We have had, and I would like to thank people on our joint behalf, we've had messages literally from all over the world, uh, from people who tune in each week to Something Rhymes with Purple. Thank you wherever you are. And some people have said, we live in Melbourne. We can't get to your live show, except you can, because the first live show we're doing this year is live on screen. It's on Thursday, Mm -hmm. the 25th of March. It's for purple people everywhere, and we will be live and in colour coming to a screen near you. So please look out for it, book for it, be there. Exactly. Really, really looking forward to that. And um, as you said, it's going to be interactive, which will be lovely. So people can ask us pretty much anything they want, except please don't ask why it should be 101th and not 101st. I'll get over that in a minute. Today, though, we are talking about not waterworks, but waterways. (laughs) (laughs) And we just thought we would have a meander down some of the sort of wonderful waterways in English. And and Giles, this is particularly relevant for you because you have been doing a programme on great canal journeys and we've heard bits and bobs about it along the way but I'd love to know what waterway facts you have learned apart from of course your favourite word which you often cite which is gongoozle which is directly linked to canals in fact. What does gongoozle mean? Remind us. I do know. So to gongoozle is to stare protractedly at a stretch of water and really to kind of also observe the hustle and bustle from a riverbank that's happening on the on the water itself. And it originated, in fact, amongst spectators of canal activity, people who would happily bang a bonk, if you remember that. Bang a bonk is to sit idly on a riverbank, except they're doing it on the side of a canal and they are watching what goes on and just watching literally the world go by. But this has been a, an amazing experience for me and for Sheila. We are people in riper years and we took over from, we couldn't replace because they're irreplaceable, two other actors, Timothy West and his wife, Brunella Scales, who had been travelling on canals throughout Britain and indeed the world over a period of 10 years. And they decided to hang up their windlass, we can come to that word in a moment, and hand over to us. And the difference between us and them is that we had never been on a canal boat, neither Sheila and I had ever been on a canal boat before. And I don't really like going on water, so I thought... It has been a revelatory, but it's been a revelatory experience, and I have loved it. Being on 
the waterways. What I want to know from you is what water has contributed to our language. Obviously, we have waterways and water course, mm-hmm. but give us your some free-flowing thoughts on water and words, Susie. Well, it actually goes to the very heart of quite a lot of everyday words in English that I think would be entirely unexpected. So if you want to talk straight away about some of the words that are derived from rivers, for example, rival, the very sense of being a rival went back to people competing over the precious supply of water from the same river. To derive something meant originally to draw water from a river. To arrive was to arrive at a river. So, you know, so many incredibly essential words in our language actually are built upon water as a very precious, valuable commodity. And, you know, and the central value that it had in our lives in previous times and of course now of course because water is incredibly precious and there is genuine fear that we will run out of the resource at some point give me the source of the the source of the word water and then come to the source of the word river please well, water is simply from Germanic, uh, Wasser. So it was, you know, English, as I always say, is essentially a Germanic language, even though we've been influenced by hundreds of other languages, some more than others. So yes, it's a sibling of Wasser, as you would say in German. And river is from Latin, so that's got a kind of romance connection. And that is from the Latin riparius, which was the bank of a river. As I say, it's sibling, very close sibling is rival. Gosh, so river gives us rival, derived, all sorts of things. Water inevitably leads us to waterway and watercourse and waterfall, and they're simply just building up over the years. That's that's waterworks. You just put two words together. Yes, absolutely. Those compound words, very simple. But there are lots of different words for different stretches of water. And sometimes the distinction between them seems to be incredibly narrow. So you've got brooks, you've got creeks, you've got streams, you've got canals. And then up and down the land, you've got so many dialect words for these things as well. Again, showing just how central they were to people's lives and livelihoods. You know, you've got bourns and becks and all sorts of wonderful words describing either tiny stretches of water water or, um, you know, very big ones. Can you unpack some of those? Can you tell me the difference between a brook and a creek and a stream and a canal? Start maybe with the canal, because canals are man-made. They are, yeah. they, they were, as it were, the, the motorways of, certainly in this country, you know, mm-hmm. with the Industrial Revolution, we had to get things from A to B. Canals were built because it was the simplest, cheapest, most effective way. And horses drew canal boats along the canals. Where does the word mm. canal come from? Canal simply comes from a Latin for a pipe or a groove or a channel. And ultimately that goes back to cana, C-A-N-N-A, meaning cane. So if you imagine a sugar cane, that is like a sort of long, narrow tube. You've got the cannula that is used in the hospitals, which people who've had cannulas, you'll know, or any doctor will tell you, it's one of the hardest things to learn as a medical student is to insert a cannula. You've got cannon, which actually came to us via the Italian, but again, for a large tube. You've got a canister, you've got a channel, you've got cannelloni, you've got canyon. All of these are linked to canal. Goodness. Just as a little, going down a little cul-de-sac for a moment, cannon and Mm. cannon. The cannon you fire and the cannon Mm. in a church is spelt differently. Oh, yes. One has got two ends and one got one. 
That's right. The canon, which is a sort of collection of books or sacred books, that's very different. That's got nothing to do with channels. And that goes back to the Greek canon, meaning a rule. So canon originally were kind of prescribed text, if you like, or those that were considered to be sacred, genuine and also, you know, set out the principles or the or the criteria by which something is judged. So that's the Greek canon, meaning rule or law. Canonical, as in canonical texts. Exactly. And a, exactly. a clergy person who is a canon, that's the same source, is it? That is exactly the same source. Whereas yes. the canon that fires is this other meaning of canon, as in canal, because it's long and tubular. Exactly. Very good. Exactly right. So the canal yes. comes from something that is long and tubular in shape, Uh, What is the difference between a canal and a stream? Well, I suppose a canal is is man-made and a stream is made by nature. Yes, exactly. So a stream is a kind of small, narrow river, really. So it flows into a river. Of course, a river is, is a stream of water flowing in a channel to the sea or a lake or another river. Whereas a creek, for example, is a kind of sheltered waterway that's often an inlet. So it's an inlet in a shoreline or a channel, for example. So that's usually kind of self-contained. What else have we got? A brook is a small stream. But, you know, very often, I think in our minds and in our language, we kind of conflate, you know, many of these. And as I say, on top of that, you've got all these wonderful local words for them. But a brook, I will brook no disobedience in my class. Mm. Is is that the same thing as the babbling brook? No. So that is entirely different. So, for example, if you, I think probably the most famous phrase that, that you will find that in is brook no quarter, which means, you know, I won't put up with anything. And the, actually the original meaning was to enjoy, but then it went on to mean able to digest. And that comes from an old English word brookan, which has got nothing to do with the brook that babbles. Oh, ain't language wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was an idea of kind of being able to endure or able to stomach, if you like. And then the quarter bit, if you want that, is probably the same quarters as barracks that soldiers live in. So in other words, I will give no place to this is the idea. Lots of different meanings there, but very different brook. But isn't that curious? It's the same five letters, but it has a totally different Mm. meaning and a different source. So the babbling brook, the river brook, the stream brook, Mm. what, what, are you sure it's not the same? Because isn't it to do with the stopping of something? A brook is the part of a stream that stops something from going into the next bit of a stream? Um, no. no, so that goes back to the old English brock. We don't actually oh. know where that comes from. But again, lots of siblings in German, bruch, and Dutch bruch as well. But to brook as in to tolerate something is a different old English word that is actually related to the German brauchen, which means to need. But yeah, that was all about kind of stomaching something and enduring it and putting up with. So very different etymologies. Good. Creek. Mm. Well, Well, as I say, I kind of tried to define what that is, but actually that's related to a Viking word, kriki, meaning a nook. So it's the idea of something kind of quite small, contained, narrow, sheltered. In North American, actually, English, and I think in Australian and New Zealand English as well, it can mean a stream or a minor tributary, but we tend to use it for a kind of narrow inlet more often than not. Creeks don't creak, because that's spelt differently, the creaking sound, but brooks do babble. Why do brooks babble, I wonder? I don't know. It's a really interesting one. I ought to look this up because maybe there was a very influential poem at some point where the poet, you know, used a little bit of onomatopoeia and alliteration for the babbling brook. I'm not sure. So many in English, 
People like Alfred Lord Tennyson, in Victorian times, people learnt much more poetry by heart and they had these. Yeah. And so you could, if you were a great poet, you could get a phrase into the language, the babbling brook. Oh, of course, there are babbling brooks in Shakespeare. I'm sure in Midsummer Night's Dream there's a babbling brook of some kind. Well, you might be right. Do you want me to look it up in the OED? Why not, since you've got the OED okay. there? And you've got the biggest OED in the world, I know. Uh, Size matters well, with you. I have. I have it online, so it, you can you can compute that as you like. Uh, so you recommend someone like Stream, yes. Is this at the beginning where it's I know a bank where the wild time grows? Is that ah, what you're thinking? Ah, yes. And I know a bank that's now a coffee shop. Um, Babbling Brook. Well, it says here... Oh, it's quite a nice poetic image, actually, but not Shakespeare. 1728 is the first one that they have here of a babbling brook, which is most delight in unfrequented glooms or shaggy banks steep and divided by a babbling brook. So 1728. And then in Australian and New Zealand English, in slang at least, a babbling brook is an army cook. Oh. Or one who caters for a kind of party with, you know, maybe sheep shearers as oh, well. Oh, is that a rhyming slang, do you think? An army cook? Babbling Yeah, book? exactly. It's a rhyming slang. Yeah. And I love the shaggy banks. That's an amusing description, isn't it? A little bit of... It is. Just going back to Shakespeare, he did use babble as a kind of indistinct, subdued, murmuring sound. And that was in Titus Andronicus. The babbling echo mocks the hounds. So there you go. It is there. Very good. Well, give us some more. I mean, ebb and flow. That obviously is a phrase that's come from somewhere. That's to do with water, is it? Ebb and flow? Yes, that's to do with water. So ebb is the tide going out and flow is the water rising again. So to ebb is Old English again. And the idea throughout Ibian as it was, is moving away from something. And then the flow is of a sea or a tidal river moving towards the land. So obviously then it applied figurative uses of time, passing, etc. Not just the, the reflux of the tide, but also a flowing away or downward, that kind of thing. That goes back to the 15th century, in fact. Something that's much more modern with time passing is the watershed. Now, they often refer to this, certainly in the UK, on television, they mm. say, oh, is it after the watershed or before the watershed? Which I think is supposed to be about nine o'clock, uh, after which you can use bad language and uh, all sorts of uh, supposedly adult themes. But before the watershed, mm. you're not supposed to be able to use them or show them. What is the origin of watershed in that context? And where does watershed come from? Uh, well, watershed is simply an area or ridge of land. I mean, you know this, obviously, that separates waters flowing to different rivers or different different stretches of river, really. So that had a very simple geographical meaning, which then, of course, metaphorically was transferred to a turning point in a situation. So something that marks a transition of some kind. So that's simply water. And then shed in this sense is a ridge of high ground. And I think watershed came together because they have in German Wasserscheider, which means very much the same thing. So it's a different sense of shed. It goes back to an old Germanic word meaning to divide. Very good. So a watershed moment is a dividing moment. A key yes. moment. You mentioned uh, the poetic shaggy banks, uh, a phrase we're not familiar with, but we are certainly familiar with river bank. Why is a bank called a bank? I suppose it, oh, it's, is it to do with, as in Banquet, that 
which we've touched on before, and banquet is somewhere, something you sit on. It's a bench, essentially. Yes, it's a bench. So it's Latin and then through French, a bonc, B-A-N-C. So it is a bench that you sit on. It's related to bench. It's related to the bank into which you put your money because, do you remember, the money lenders used to have tables or kind of low benches on which they did their trade. It's linked to bankrupt because in Italian, bancarotta meant a broken bench because when a moneylender went out of business, the bench was either figuratively or literally kind of broken to mark his demise or her demise, probably his. So all of those are related to the riverbank and the riverbank is simply somewhere where you might like to sit and go and goozle. Well, look, before we do that or even go up Shit Creek without a paddle, should we take a quick break? Let's do that. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple. We're on the water, on the waterways. We're not being sold down the river. We're brooking no quarter. We're tidying ourselves over. Uh, there's water under the bridge. Um, I mean, all these turns of phrase, I suppose the water and the river, in fact, I know this from the Canal series, once upon a time, the water works around the country were like the main roads. They were absolutely central to people's lives. So mm. perhaps it's not so surprising that water is so frequently involved in phrases. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, so many different sayings and so many different metaphors and idioms, etc. And some of them are really dark. So you talked there about selling someone down the river. This is really awful in its beginnings because they were anything but figurative, really, when they began. So if you go back to the early half of the 19th century, Louisville in Kentucky was one of the largest slave trading posts in the country. And slaves would be taken there to be sold on to cotton plantations further south, and they'd be taken by the Mississippi or the Ohio rivers. And obviously what awaited them was horrendous, hardship, brutal labour, yeah, cruelty of the highest order. So it was the worst fate of all. And some took their own lives actually before they arrived. But the idea of being sold down the river is simply being sold by a slave's owners to a plantation owner who could be often particularly sadistic. So it's the sense of profound betrayal, really. And yeah, it's all about human treachery. But this is why I love language, because as we unpack these words and phrases, we are unpacking our heritage, both the dark side as well as the sunny side. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's awful. Water under the bridge, I suppose that's quite simple. It's, you know, what happens when you play poo sticks? Yes, water under the bridge. There were lots of different forms of this. So there was water over the dam, water under the dike, water under the mill, etc. And it was all to do with the passing of time or the suggestion that past events have been forgotten and aren't worth bringing up anymore. So I think it's probably around the 18, mid-1800s that it came about. And there's actually, there's a French expression which is very similar. And I think that's how it appears first. Il passera bien de l'eau sous le pont. Much water will pass under the bridge. It's quite a lovely metaphor, really. We have listeners in France and in Canada, both are places where they speak French. I wonder how they play poo sticks and what they call it. For those of you who are not familiar with poo sticks, this is a game made famous in the Christopher Robin Winnie the Pooh books written by A.A. Mill in the 1920s. You drop a stick on one side of the bridge and rush to the other side. In fact, you, you drop two sticks and you see which one gets there first. Did you play poo sticks as a, a little girl? All the time, yeah. No, I played it with my kids as well. But to my embarrassment, I actually can't remember where it appears in Winnie the Pooh. Where is it? Or does he play it all no, the time? No, he doesn't play it all the time. I think it's in the house at Pooh Corner. 
Okay. So, but if I've got it wrong, no doubt, purple people will put us right. We like you to do that. It's purple at something else.com if ever you want to get in touch. Up shit creek without a paddle. Not a very nice turn of phrase. Before we go to that one, can we do Bridge Over Troubled Waters? Oh, please. I, to I hope it. you I might love sing it. that song. No, I'm not going to sing it, but I do love it. But it's I've done a bit of research into the history of it, so I hope I've gone to the right sources, because I didn't actually know, I knew it was a Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel song, obviously, but it was created in the 60s when, you know, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King were gone, racial tensions were everywhere, it was Vietnam War, Richard Nixon was about, and apparently Paul Simon, he had these opening lines in his head for a while, when you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. And he put them together, I think it was one of his favourite Bach chorals. But then he couldn't think of where to go from there. And what ultimately inspired him to finish it with The Bridge Over Troubled Water was a song by a gospel group called The Swan Silvertones. And there's a quote from Paul Simon. He says, every time I came home, I put that record on. I started to go to gospel chord changes and took the melody further. Then there was one song where the lead singer was scatting and he shouted out, I'll be your bridge over deep water if you trust in my name. And he said, well, I guess I stole it. And how brilliantly he did steal it because it's such an amazing song, isn't it? And it's kind of slipped into English as an idiom, you know, unto itself or because of those beginnings, which I love. I love actually reading lyrics as though they were poetry. Uh, yeah. You know, of course, a great song, you hear the music and you immediately think of the words or you hear the words and you immediately can imagine the music. But some lyrics like those work well simply as poetry, bridge over troubled water. So well done, Simon and Garfunkel. There isn't an Upshit Creek song, I hope, but where, where does that... <laughs> Where does that rather lurid phrase come from? It's really interesting because I assumed that Up Shit Creek was the kind of more modern version of Up the Creek, but actually it's the other way around. So Up at the Creek came a good few decades after Up Shit Creek. And Up Shit Creek, have a guess at when that originated. I don't know, 1930s? No, 1860s. Goodness. And actually the first record in the Oxford English Dictionary is from the record of the US House of Representatives no. where it says, our men put old Lincoln up shit creek and we'll put old Dill up. I'm not sure who Dill was. I think our US listeners will know. And then Ernest Hemingway used it as well. The stuff is so tight and hard and everything hangs on everything else and it would all just be shot up shit creek. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a really vivid image, isn't it? It's a creek that's full of horrible stuff. Have you seen the TV series Shit's Creek that Netflix is showing? Uh, no, you, just, you were talking about the other I'm day. Great, and in fact, someone yeah. just yesterday mentioned Call My Agent and I was saying how much you loved that one as well because we thought we were out for a walk and we saw a dog that apparently... There is a dog character, is there not, in Call My there Agent? Is. Yeah, and we saw Call My Agent is that. a very superior French series. Now it's come to an end on Netflix. Shit's Creek is a very funny TV series. Now in its yeah. sort of sixth, seventh, eighth season, it's yet again won Golden Globes. I think it's very funny. It's a place called Shit's Creek. That's the idea. And there was a, this... Yeah, spelled S-C-H, yeah, right? Exactly. S-C-H, right? Anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do... That's how you spell it in German, though, Shitter. Is that how you spell it? Yeah, what's the origin? Yeah. Actually, it's not a very nice word, but since we've touched on it, and it's, it mm. is connected with water, because we flush it away, um, and we're in the creek now, what is the origin of the word shit? It's quite interesting because, you know, in our swearing episode, we were talking about how everyone talks about all oh, those old fashioned Anglo-Saxon words, mm -hmm. which you know, people use that as a byword for a swear word. But actually, more often than not, they came about in the Middle Ages. But shit is an exception. And it simply goes back to the old English shitter, meaning literally diarrhoea. And it's related to the German scheissen 
So you've got shice and shitten and all sorts of things. But it was originally completely neutral, so not used in a vulgar way at all. It was only later that we put that taboo on it because we are slightly prudish, aren't we, about toilet habits? I think quite rightly too. We, hmm. <laughs> we've we touched on <laughs> words deriving from river, like rival and derive and arrive, which I like. Are there, hmm. in the past, you've introduced me to words that have within them hidden words, as it were, where we don't realise. Hmm. Are there words in our language that actually come from the water world that we wouldn't have known come from water? Yes, there are. I mean, to start with stew, I know we're both veggie. You know, I love a good vegetarian stew, but you might never guess that it actually went back to naked bathing. Um, Because when in the middle, well, today when there's a drought, we might be urged to bathe with family or a friend, pre-COVID, I guess. Um, But in the Middle Ages, baths were, of course, designed to fit multiple people. And they were quite big events and you would be entertained with wine and food and music, etc. And the Crusaders apparently loved the Turkish baths that they encountered and they brought the idea of hot baths and sweating rooms home with them and these were known as stews so they were huge public bathhouses that would open up beneath the sign of a turk's head which was the symbol of the crusaders and in them they could stew to their hearts content and actually it goes back to the latin ultimately estufare which also gave a stove but also is linked to the greek toifos meaning vapor And that word gave us typhoid because of the heat in the body that that horrible disease presents itself with. Anyway, a few years or so after the Crusades, stew had apparently been adopted by medieval chefs, possibly as a joke, but it was all about tenderising meat and veg by simmering them in a little liquid, just as you might simmer yourself in a hot bath. So yeah, it was a really strange, strange journey from bathing in the nutty to having a good old fashioned stew and dumplings. You know... Forget the dumplings, actually. I'm not sure I like that image. (laughs) Yeah, that's where it goes from. The definition of a gentleman is someone who, when sharing the bath, sits with his back to the taps. Oh, that's a nice one. My father explained that to me. That's as close as we ever got to a discussion of the facts of life. Shall I give you another one? Yes. Obviously, as you get older, some people are affected by cataracts in the eye. And, of course, cataract still has a secondary meaning of a kind of floodgate or a sort of waterfall, if you like. And that is because for the Romans, cataracta could mean both a waterfall and a kind of portcullis, so a heavy barrier lowered in front of a gateway. And they explain the different uses of cataract today, really. So the first led to the sense of a large waterfall that tumbles over a precipice. And then the medical meaning is because of the clouding of the lens of the eye, with the idea that the person's vision is obstructed by this condition, as though a portcullis has been lowered down over it. So that's why they're called cataracts. And and as I say, they've got then water in their history, albeit hidden. Well, look, I think we dived in at the deep end, didn't we? And nice. uh, I think that's enough. Those words will tide us over. Tide, it's so many expressions. Yes. Uh, it says... Yes. You- so tiding over is like sort of being carried over by the tide. So you're sort of, you know, swept up by the waves over an obstacle in your way. They say you cannot step into the same river twice. But I think this is a subject we could come back to. Why do they say that? That's quite interesting, that. Well, I, again, did a little bit of delving into that. Because I have to say, I didn't know this idiom, you cannot step into the same river twice. But it goes back to a philosopher, Heraclitus, who apparently was quite influential and who believed in a unity of harmony in the world, but also 
that he kind of saw the world as being in flux constantly. So everything is forever changing. And so that's the same idea because you can't step into the same river twice because the second time you will be a different person and it'll be a different river in that sense of flux. Isn't that lovely? Well, we will come back to water. We'll step into this river twice because we haven't actually talked about frozen water, which is interesting. Oh, ice. No, we haven't. Mm. But maybe that we'll wait until winter and spring is... And then I want you to sing Let It Go. I, and I want to sing Let It Go. Through. We haven't done enough musical episodes with us both singing. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I sent you my vaccine song, didn't I? No, I heard, I heard Dolly's one, which was brilliant. Oh, when Maxine took the vaccine, I haven't sent it to you? Not that I've seen. Well, look, I'll send it to uh, Lawrence, our lovely producer, and maybe he okay. and Jay and Gully and the team can put it in at the end of the episode. It's going to be you against Dolly it's me. with it's, vaccine, vaccine, it, vaccine. Exactly. It's vaccine. I look forward to that. Good. Meanwhile, have people been writing to us? Oh, they have. As always, we love the emails from the purple people. And uh, there's one from Harrison Gookie, what a brilliant name. Apologies if it's Gookie. I'm not sure quite how to pronounce that. But he says that he refers back to our law episode in which we gave the meaning and origin of the word pettifogger, which reminded him of a particular quote in his favourite film Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis. And it's a scene where Mr Lincoln is meeting with his counsel who are in disagreement about pushing forth with the 13th Amendment. And Mr Lincoln has had enough, gives a fantastic speech, and then he refers to his counsel as pettifogging Tammany Hall hucksters. And he says he's always liked this insult, but never quite knew what it meant. And fortunately, your podcast has shed light on the term pettifogging. And I understand that Tammany Hall references a role Daniel Day-Lewis played in a previous film. And Lawrence, the, the aforesaid brilliant producer, tells us that it was an 18th century New York City political organisation, which you'll find in Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. So, wow, this podcast definitely takes us places. But he's wondering where Huckster comes from, because that will complete his set. So, I can try and answer that one. Huckster, I mean, you know, they go with hawkers and peddlers and people who've been selling things out of the back of wagons for a very long time. Huckster simply goes back to a Dutch word, hooken, meaning to pedal simply. So it came to us via Dutch, as so many words did, and it was first recorded in the 14th century. And in the sense of a hawker. It's been appearing in English since about the early 1500s. So there you go. It's been around for an extremely long time. But I didn't know about Tammany Hall, so I've learned something from Harrison now. Good. And from Lawrence. Uh, this, this is an education yeah. in itself here. And Harrison adds, congratulations on reaching 100 episodes. Thank you, Harrison. Oh. And we love you being called Gooky. It's a great, great yes. name. It's excellent. Somebody else with an interesting name has written to us, Ayla Iridag. I think I hope I pronounced that correctly. Currently listening to episode 99 on legal language while working as a lawyer in Scotland. And they call them different things up there, I think. Some mm. of the language up here is a little different. Ah, yes, says Ayla. We have advocates rather than barristers and 15 people in a jury rather than 12, for example. Which is interesting. Still an odd number. It's very, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, and yeah. given the population is smaller in Scotland. Anyway, however, my question <laughs> is this. In Scotland, to become an advocate, you must undergo a period of shadowing, learning and assessment known as devilling, similar to pupillage. Pupil, mm -hmm. If you're a pupil, you have a pupil master if you're being a barrister in England. It's called mm. pupillage. But in Scotland, it's called devilling. And the people are known mm. as devils during that time. Where does this come from? 
Well, do you know, I could not get to the bottom of this one. So thank you, um, Ayla, for setting me off on an adventure, really. I ended up messaging a friend of yours and mine, Giles, Judge Rob Rinder, ah, yes. because I thought if anyone knows, he will know. Rob Rinder, Judge Rinder, is a very, very popular character on British TV screens, but also an absolute excellent barrister. And his legal knowledge is phenomenal. And I have to say, he too was stumped. He said it's banned in some chambers. I must be in England, devilling. And we both surmised that actually, because it involves, certainly in its early days, getting other people to do your work and then you passing it off as your own, that it's called that way because it's a devilish thing to do. In other words, you know, it's basically stealing someone else's work and then getting all the glory for yourself. And that seems to then, from what Ayla says, to have kind of slipped into a kind of more formal use of shadowing and learning, which probably still involves doing stuff for the master, as it were, and perhaps not getting the credit until you attain, you know, full official status yourself. But I think that's where it began. Very good. Brilliant. Well, thanks to Rob for that one. Hi, Susie and Giles. Love the podcast, says James McFarlane, although I'm sure you're bored of hearing that by now. We are not. We we are never, never. We're both insecure and I'm male. So, you know, between us, we really are desperate for any kind of compliment that is going. Sat on the sofa with my girlfriend and she jokingly said she'd love a cup of joe. Ah, where does that Mm. come from? I've not heard of this expression, cup of joe. Cup of joe. It's... I think mostly North American, but like so much American slang has slipped into um, British English as well. And we think it's a riff on Java. So we think Joe is some kind of variation on Java, which itself in North American English is another word for coffee. And so-called because, of course, Java is the island in Indonesia that actually produces a lot of coffee. So we think that's where that comes from. Very good. A Joe also is a Scottish sweetheart, isn't it? A word popularised by Robert Burns. Oh, nice. Yeah, so a cup of Joe could be, you know. <laughs> anyway, very good. Yeah. If you want to get in touch... You can get in touch with us. It's purple at something else.com and something without a G. Send us the email and we, we look at them all and we include as many as possible and try to answer any queries. Well, Susie answers them. I just chip in. Susie, have you got a trio of words to broaden our minds? I have. Mm-hmm. I have. Well, you mentioned homeschooling and the occasional frustrations that come about, um, certainly in the sort of hearts and minds of parents who are trying to juggle everything. This one might be useful, but only if you're in a bad mood, because we love them really, don't we? But a ranty pole is a centuries old word for a wild, unruly young person. A ranty pole. Like and, you know, understanding, I'm going to sneeze. <coughs> Excuse me. There must be a word for an inadvertent sneeze. And did I ever tell you, by the way, that sneeze, the S in sneeze at the beginning actually was a misprint or at least a a misunderstanding of the old fashioned F. It was a fnaza. We did talk about this, I'm sure. A fnaza is much more of a sneeze, I think, than a sneeze. But someone thought, oh, that that must be an S when in fact it was an old fashioned F. Absolutely. Um, I do remember that because we were discussing how I used to, at my father's edition of Shakespeare, where the S's all looks like F's. So when we got yes. to where the B sucks, there suck I, I thought that was terribly naughty oh. and exciting. But yes, the F and the S were confusing. So a sneeze was a exactly. finesse. It was a finesse. But uh, back to Rantipole. Uh, yes, wild, unruly young person. There you go. My second one, 
I may possibly have used this one before, but, and I'm not sure whether you'll like this one, Giles, but I think, you know, they are around. Coccolorum. A coccolorum is a little man who thinks he's rather big. I think it's a good... In every sense, I think, you know, in... in, in <laughs> well, I know what you mean. In the sense of, you know, thinking that he's kind of strutting around and owns the world, but actually... A coccolorum, how do you spell a little that? in everywhere. Cock a lorum, L O R U M. And it's as in, you know, the, the sort of the cock on the on the heap. The cockerel. The cock on the heap. Yes. Thinking is, yeah, strutting a oh what a cock a little cock a lorum. I like it. Exactly. No, it's a good word. Strutting huffs. It's a good It's a good one. And then my last one, we don't always look to words that have been created by one particular person, especially if they don't get in the dictionary. But I love this one. And again, I think we will all recognise the phenomenon. If during the pandemic, during lockdown, you've been watching a lot of Netflix, as we have, sitting on the sofa, there will always be somebody who chats the entire way through a movie. That, according to the columnist Joel Achenbach, I'm pronouncing it the German way, but he might say Achenbach, I'm not sure, is a Milver, M-I-L-V-E-R, someone who chats incessantly through a film. I'm afraid I am the guilty party. Is that you? I, I am the guilty party. I'd been doing a, a television series in the UK called Celebrity Gogglebox, where I sit on a yeah. sofa either with my friend Sheila Hancock or with my friend Maureen Lippmann, and we watch TV. And of course, they encourage us to chatter, but it's not a problem because I do ch- And uh, Maureen is forever saying, oh, shut up, for God's sake, shut up. <laughs> Trying to follow this. I've not seen this before. Shut up. I am clearly a, is it a Milvera? Somebody who mil- no a milver. a milver you're a milver I'm a M I L V E R milver somebody who doesn't stop talking yes in a film specifically specifically somebody who's up dearing me I'm so sorry I just got into the habit of it that's why watching anything takes us twice as long in fact it usually takes us three times as long because a we have to replay everything because we didn't quite because of our age we didn't quite hear what they were saying and then because I talk through the scene my wife says please play that again I miss that so every hour long program actually takes three hours to view. That's because I'm a okay. Milver. Yes. I think you have just proved the point. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a nice short poem for you this week because I was Lovely. looking for a poem that was connected with water because I knew we were going to talk ah, about nice. canals and rivers and, you know, things that go splash in the night. And I then set to wonder why it was that the rain looks like rain. Why does it come down in the way it does? Why doesn't it come down as bubbles or in buckets? Why does it come down as it does? And then I remember this lovely little poem by Spike Milligan. Mm. There are holes in the sky where the rain gets in, but they're ever so small. That's why the rain is thin. Like that. It's like having a giant colander in the sky. That's lovely. Thank you to everyone for listening to us and for supporting us through 101 episodes. We are incredibly grateful. I'm going to go and chastise myself forever thinking that 101th was the correct way of putting things. But meanwhile, Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Harriet Wells, Steve Ackerman, Ella McLeod, Jay Beale, and Whereabouts Unknown, Gully. No cockalorum he. Maxine was scared to death. You hear such awful tales. People are dying from Winnipeg to Wales. But now she's a different lady. Her life's changed overnight. 
where there once was darkness, she can see some light. Since Maxine took the vaccine, everything is fine. So fine. Her life is so much better. And so is mine. She feels like she's been locked in a lion's den. But since Maxine took the vaccine, she can breathe again. Maxine was so careful. She never made a fuss. She kept her distance and never took the bus. She sang happy birthday every time she washed her hands. When you're in isolation, it messes with your plans. Since Maxine took the vaccine, Everything is fine, 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 fine. Her life is so much better, and so is mine. She feels like she's been locked in a lion's den. But since Maxine took the vaccine, she can breathe again. She can breathe, ah, she can breathe again. Oh, Maxine, darling, thank you for taking that vaccine. It's made all the difference to us both. <laughs>